first let me uh, express my gratitude to all, starting by you, to all my friends who organized my visit here and again to emphasize my honor to be here with Tom. You know, I discovered Tom only through criticism and some people started to criticize my work and one of the critical points were, but what you are telling is just repeating the old stuff already developed, uh, I wouldn't like to insult you to go into how many years uh, ago, and, uh, but my point was, what is bad in this? I think, what is bad in this? Why always this new, new, new? Maybe the most difficult and creative thing is truly to repeat what was already said. I agree here, and it has great theological consequences with someone that uh, we both like, like uh, Kierkegaard and somebody else who maybe we don't both like in the same way, like Gilles Deleuze, who said very nicely that everything really new appears in the form of a repetition. Take the modernity. Who are the idiots of early modernity? Those who simply trusted, oh, new technology, those cheap liberals. But it is Pascal whose problem was precisely how to remain orthodox in the conditions of modernity that really generated something new. We read today Pascal, we don't read those cheap apologists. So again, it's my honor to be reduced to your, not even successor, but repetitor, almost in the musical sense, you know, co-repetitor in the opera and so on. Okay, so uh, again, being an old-fashioned Marxist, I like this westerns from the late 40s, where you know the good guys are in white, the bad guys are in black, not too complex. So I like the enemy. The enemy will be personally a friend today. I appreciate him. It will be the representatives of so-called postmodern deconstructive theological term. Again, I have great respect to them, but I think that's the line that separates us. What defines the so-called postmodern theological term? Here is a quote from a book co-written by uh, Jack Caputo and Gianni Vatimo. It's the question, how do we get from the post-Christian, post-Holocaust and largely secular death of God, theologies of the 60s, to the postmodern return of religion? The answer is that the death of God, the secularization of modern Europe, somehow clears the slate by obliterating the moral metaphysical God of ontotheology and thus paradoxically opens up the space for the new authentic post-metaphysical religion, uh, Christianity, or maybe not even Christianity, focused on agape. In exemplary of this attitude is John Caputo's on religion, maybe the ultimate formulation of the Deridean deconstructive messianism. Caputo is horrified at the very idea of a religious dogma, of the notion of a God who decided to address a particular group at a particular moment, according them a privileged access to absolute truth. But in this way, by Caputo, I think religion is reduced to a belief, to a simple minimal belief that our miserable reality is not all there is. The ultimate, that the ultimate truth is elsewhere, that there is another world possible, a totally deontological promise, hope of redemption to come, which this hope is betrayed by any ontological positivization. My question, very naive one, what then happens here with 
you know, in this post-metaphysical, deconstructive, uh, post-secular, however you call it, thought, where, if I may mock it in a very friendly way, the message is, of course God is there, there is no grandfather sitting up there, but, and now I'm consciously mocking, but, in this void, from this very absence, someone, a voice, is addressing us, an unconditional call, and so on, and so on. My point is, what happens here with the basic Christian motive of the death of God? What is allowed to die in this deconstructive Christianity? As expected, only the temporary, contingent, historic specification of God. A quote from Jack Caputo. So my theology of the event is prepared to concede, if not exactly the death of God, at least the mortality or historical contingency of the name of God, the separability in principle of the event from the name, like a spirit leaving a lifeless body behind. For me, it's difficult to miss the irony of these lines. If you look into Caputo's book, a couple of pages earlier, he violently attacks as supersessionist, potentially racist, the Paulinian idea of opposing spirit and letter, as again potentially anti-Semitic. But here, all of a sudden, we get the metaphor of the dead letter to be dropped so that the spirit survives. In this deconstructive way, every particular taking sides, every instantiation of the divine is relativized, has to be taken and practiced with ironic distance. Whenever we focus on a particular formulation of the divine, as we put it in French, ce n'est pas ça, this is not that. Within this state, space, I see no place for the paradox of Christian incarnation. In Christ, this miserable individual, in this miserable individual, we see God himself, so that his death is the death of God himself. I cannot emphasize enough this point, how, and Hegel saw this clearly, and after Hegel, Kierkegaard, this properly comical comedy aspect of incarnation. You know that Kierkegaard, in some of his, I forgot, I'm sorry, where, openly uses this uh, 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 comparison with theater, you know, like fanfares at a court arrive a majestic king, and then behind the curtain a small ridiculous dog or a dwarf enters. That's for Kierkegaard, the incarnation. We, uh, uh, the properly Christian choice is the leap of faith by means of which we take the risk to fully engage in a singular instantiation as the truth embodied with no ironic distance, no fingers crossed. Christ stands for the very singular point, as I see it excluded by Caputo, a direct short circuit, identity even, between a positive singularity and the divine event. This is what in German idealism or Hegel is called the absurdity of infinite judgment, or as Hegel puts it two times in his lessons on the history of religion, the monstrosity of Christ. This mere miserable individual, nobody uh, crucified between two bandits and so on, this is God himself. Even Caputo pr uh, professes his love for Kierkegaard. But where is here Kierkegaard's central insight? His insistence on the paradox of Christianity. Eternity is only accessible through time through the belief in Christ's incarnation as a temporal event.
How then, after admitting that every figure of God is culturally conditioned, how can we go on praying? Caputo's colleague, I also appreciate him very much, he's my friend as a person, uh, uh, Gianni Vatimo, answers to this question, namely to the question that if all everything we say of God, all our doctrines are just temporary approximations which we shouldn't ontologize, God remains an otherness and so on. How then can we go on praying? Sorry, but what I will read you now, although it's meant as a noble, gentle thought, is for me, and I'm an atheist, I don't, uh, uh, I don't uh, conceal it, it's filled up with an ex probably unintended but explosive objective cynicism. Here, I quote the passage. This is Vatimo. When I pray, I know precisely that the words I'm using are not intended to convey some literal truth. I pray these words more for the love of a tradition than I do for the love of some mythic reality. It is like the relationship you have with an aged relative. Sorry, it means what? God is a stupid old man just to plug it. But much deeply, I think, what we do here is make one step towards the cynical functioning of ideology today. This is how we usually believe today. Nobody dares almost to believe in the first person. You say, oh, you know, it's, uh, usually it's the cultural relativization of belief. I don't really believe, but I don't want to disappoint my children or it's my life world and so on and so on. Things, of course, are here much more mysterious. I claim that we believe, maybe even more than ever, but in a wrong way. We believe objectively. We believe through the mechanisms which we don't take seriously, which is why, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but it's worth repeating, my favorite model of how we believe today and also how ideology functions today is, again, I'm sorry for repeating myself, if some of you know this joke, you know the famous Niels Bohr adventure. A friend visited him in countryside and saw a horseshoe above the entrance and asked, you know, in Europe, I don't know how it's here, it's a superstition, uh, a superstitious item allegedly preventing evil spirits to enter the house. And the friend asked him, but wait a minute, you're a scientist, do you believe in this bullshit? Bohr's answer, wonderful one. I'm not stupid, of course I don't believe in it. So why do I have it here? Because I heard that it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> That's our standard religion. Beliefs circulate, you don't have to take them seriously, and so on and so on. The lesson is the, that we believe much more than we think. So against this kind of cynical relativization, I claim that the only way to redeem the subversive core of Christianity is to return to the death of God theology, to repeat its gesture today. What gets lost in the soft, soft postmodern theology is the dimension indicated by the very name death of God, the traumatic core of the divine kenosis, of God's self-emptying. In postmodern theology, kenosis affects only us, humans. It turns out to be the deconstructive drawing of the line of separation between the unconditional promise and its contingent instantiations. In and through it, the divine dimension is emptied of its ontotheological fetishization. What is missing here, from my perspective, is something on which you insist, all good Hegelian, we insist. It is that kenosis 
And this is for me the very core of Christianity. If you take this away, Christianity is another version of paganism. That kenosis is not just a process of us. This is a very Hegelian topic. This is topic. This is what Hegel meant when he said to grasp the absolute, not only a substance, but a subject. Our alienation from God is at the same time the self-alienation of God himself. What we do with God is what God is doing to himself. Which is why I hope you notice this. In Christianity, our access to God is a totally different one than in other religions. It's not God is up there and some, somehow through some stupid ascetic self-weeping or whatever, somehow you can get closer to the guy. No. What you do is that at the very point when you feel totally emptied, alienated from God, you discover that your identity is with Christ on the cross, which is when God felt abandoned, you know, the famous father, why have you forsaken me, from himself. It is when you see how, experience how your abandonment by God overlaps by the divine self, self-abandonment. This means something, among other things, very precise, that although I give a very materialist reading of Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit uh, 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 does not mean the simple Feuerbachian Marxist point that, oh, okay, we discover there is no substantial God and it's just that God is just a collective ideological projection of us humans and so on, so that all we have to do, you know, this big Feuerbachian Marxist topic is to reappropriate the alienated substance. No, precisely this double movement of how what we experience as our abandonment from God is the divine kenosis itself, this is the Hegelian core of it. Now, as to ethical consequences from this, now I come to the political part. Uh, I think we should really give this to all children to read. If I were to run a kind of a, a Marxist, Hegelian, Christian, totalitarian state, I hope a secret dream of all of us, uh, <laughs> one of the first readings wouldn't be sayings of President Mao or what, but uh, the book of Job. I think this is the zero level, the first example that I know of critique of ideology. Why? Okay, we all know what happens. Things turn out very bad for Job. He loses his animals, goats, women, and so on, in that order, I think it's described. But then something happens. Remember, the three theological friends come. What's their point? It's not so much to convince Job that he is guilty but to convince him that his suffering has some deeper meaning. They are, I think, ideologists at its zero level. One says, God is just so. If you suffer, you must have done something wrong, even if you don't know what. The other guy says, uh, okay, maybe God is just test, uh, uh, testing you, whatever. But the point is, it has your suffering some deeper meaning. And then something unheard of happens, as you probably know. God appears at the end and says, no, everything that the three ideologists said is wrong, everything that Job said is right. This resistance to meaning is crucial when we are confronting potential or actual catastrophes, from AIDS to ideological, sorry, ecological disasters to Holocaust. They don't have a deeper 
meaning. And here things get even more complex. But then at the end, of course, we all know, Job nonetheless confronts God with, what about my suffering? I claim, and I, here I follow my favorite uh, Catholic theologist, Gilbert Keith, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, I claim that the standard, at least to my knowledge, predominant reading, is totally wrong. Namely, the reading which reads that God's apparently boastful explosion. You remember, but who are you to say, who were you when I was created, all those unicorn monsters whatsoever? It's usually read as this assertion of the radical gap separating God from man. The way I read it, following Chesterton, is exactly in the opposite way. That God's message is, you think you are in trouble, but look, the whole universe is one big mess. Shit, even I don't know what's happening. It's kind of a God being overwhelmed by the mess he created, God at a loss. Uh, and now we come to the crucial point. Uh, so what, for me, dies on the cross? Here I follow Hegel. When he says, what dies on the cross is not an earthly representative of God. That's specific to, in other religions, when you deal with sons, messenger, it's, he is up there, we are here, he sends a messenger, we people crucify him, screw him up, screw things up, so then, okay, son, come back, maybe in thousand years I'll send you again, whatever. No, as Hegel emphasizes, it's precisely that God of the beyond itself which dies. What does this mean? Uh, you, I hope, remember what I find the most disgusting metaphor that I can imagine of theology. Uh, the metaphor of a painting. You know, the idea is when you encounter evil, you think it's evil. It's, it's like when you watch a painting from too close and you just see a disturbing stain. And then the idea is withdraw to a proper distance and you will see how what wrongly appeared to you as evil really contributes to global harmony and so on and so on. I have problems with this. I mean, like, it would be nice to say how, oh, why do we bother so much with Gulag, Holocaust, or let's not limit ourselves just to this, or what happened with Congo and what incidentally is happening in Congo today. These are just these are just events which, if you withdraw and look at the total harmony, they contribute to the global peace. I mean, the God who needs such an element to in, impose his hammer on me would be the good old Satan that you mentioned. So what I'm saying is that I claim that if there is a spiritual meaning of Christ's death, it's precisely his abdication from this role. Christ is no longer old guy the death of Christ stands for the death of God who somehow guarantees that at the end things will turn out okay. You know, like we may experience a confused reality, but somehow there is old guy up there pulling the strings and so on, guaranteeing the uh, happy ending. No, it's precisely a God who fearlessly throws himself, as it were, into his own creation, not playing this dirty game of when you complain to him, Oh, things are screwed up. Oh, no, you have to see the whole picture. No, no, no. The truth is in detail. Let me tell you uh, an a couple of anecdotes now, very brief ones. I read an anecdote about Harold Pinter, who was a couple of years ago before his death, obviously, thrown out of a reception at the U U.S. Embassy in Turkey. 
when a US diplomat was praising the Turkish political progress. Pinter evoked the brutal torture of the Kurdish guerrillas by the Turkish military. The diplomat responded that there are always two sides of each story, you know, you cannot just focus on this, you, you should see the broader picture, and then Pinter cut him short with, but not if your balls are wired to a battery and shot through by electricity, then there is no broader picture. And I claim that this is Christ's gesture. There is no broader picture. Re allow me to make this point absolutely clear, to repeat two stories which I really like because they are, I think, Christology and its purest, uh, which I used in one of my books. I always like political joke to illustrate theological point. But from when I was young, you remember, there was an era when there were monsters like Richard Nixon, Leonid Brezhnev, and Erich Honecker, Honecker in East Germany. The story is one of the stupid stories, you know. They all confront God and are allowed to ask God one question. Nixon asked what will become from out of United States uh, 30, 50 years from now. God says oh, it will be a Soviet Republic. Nixon, be careful how I literally formulate it, Nixon turns around and starts to cry. Then Brezhnev asks Vitro, oh, so what will become with my Soviet Union? God answers, sorry, guy, no better. Soviet Union will be a Chinese colony. Again, Brezhnev turns around and starts to cry. Then Honecker, German Democratic Republic, asks, oh, so what will be with my beloved GDR? You can guess the answer. God turns around and starts to cry. <laughs> this is the proper, when you fall in, you know, you have the series, you think God is out, he falls into it. Or to give you a similar example, my favorite political joke from there. In the late 30s, Lubyanka, KGB prison, three guys found themselves in the same cell and start to explain to each other their position. The first guy says, uh, I was condemned to five years for opposing Popov, Popov, a top nomenclatura guy. The second guy says, ah, but the party line then changed, and I was condemned to 10 years for supporting Popov. Finally, the third one says, yes, you can guess. I'm here for life, and I am Popov. <laughs> this is the Christological moment. You got it, how the apparent exception up there falls, uh, how should I put it, falls into the series. So, not to get too far into this just to conclude so my point is not to be an atheist christian in the sense of saving the, the christian message in atheist form my point is a much stronger one here not only is atheism the truth of christianity but one can only be a true atheist by passing through the christian experience all other atheisms continue to rely on some form of the big other Stalinism, you have the big other of history which guarantees the meaning of our acts and so on and so on. So what happens for me with the death of Christ is what? Remember, and that's crucial, after the death of Christ, there is no happy return or whatever. It's Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost is what? It's a collective of believers. I use the word collective, not community. An egalitarian collective of believers with no guarantee in the big other. Basically, with the death of Christ, the big other, any historical guarantee, spiritual, whatever, ontological, is, is, uh, disappears. For me, the death of Christ means not that the ultimate message of Christianity is we are condemned to our freedom. It's not we, can rely, we, can, we should trust 
God. It is God should trust. God trusts us. Uh, now I am approaching the end of time, so I will just recapitulate what I wanted to say. In the first, I want to interpret from here, from this crucial notion of Holy Ghost as the community, egalitarian community of believers, the question of violence. This Holy Spirit, of course, is an engaged collective. This is another crucial Christian experience for me that. Truth can be, at the same time, universal and engaged. How to read from here? I always like to embarrass my theological friends with just reading them those passages that I, of course, as an old crazy leftist, uh, admire most in the New Testament. You know, all those horrifying statements by Christ. Do not think I came to bring, to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, to bring peace but the sword, or I have come to cast fire upon the earth, or if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple and so on and so on. How to read this? It's incredible. I'm quite amused at how I get the whole series of excuses, like my st the standard procedure is that my theological opponents who pretend to be good Orthodox Christians all the time turn into some kind of cheap historicist deconstructionist. They say, you know, you should understand the historical circumstances there and so on and so on. Then, then the most blasphemous version I find is the one of uh, trying to relativize. It doesn't mean you really have to hate your parents. Just, you shouldn't love them too much. Sorry, that's a blasphemy for me. It means, you know, God, some kind of perverse, obscene old guy. Okay, okay, you can love your wife, father, but I want to be sure that you love me more. No? And so on, all that stuff. I think the only way to read these scandalous words is precisely along the lines of revolutionary violence, what uh, Walter Benjamin developed as uh, divine violence, and so on and so on. It's not hatred as kind of a pseudo-dialectical opposite to love. It's hatred out of love. This is the wonderful message of Kierkegaard in his works of love, where he says that a true Christian doesn't only love his neighbors, he is ready to hate, even kill his neighbors out of love. To sustain this tension is, for me, what we need today. And this brings me now really to conclude to what this means for the social order. It means something for the reason of which I think apocalyptic Christianity is still the ultimate horizon today, which we need it more than ever. The idea is a very simple one. This is for me what Christ means with hate your father, mother. Not literally hate them, kill them, but hate them precisely in their symbolic institutional function as mother, father, and so on. The message is a wonderful one. It is that social hierarchic order is not the ultimate reality. There is a space for an egalitarian collective which, as it were, cuts across it. And not just in this Buddhist way of, of in nirvana we are all the same. No, no, no. We can be all the same here on this earth. We can organize ourselves as the same here. And again, this universality is not uh, an abstract universality which is wrongly attributed to Hegel in the sense of the universality of a hierarchic order of, you know, like 
you as a mother are a good mother, he is a good master, you are a good obeying uh, kid, and so we are, everyone has their own place. This is for me, are you aware how revolutionary here Christianity is? This is for me the ultimate message, to use the fashionable terms. If there ever was a non-holistic religion, and if there is a thing that I hate is so-called holistic approach, it's Christianity. It's not the religion of to establish harmonious order. It's the religion of struggle, of imbalance. To be universal means to fight. The only true universality is the universality of struggle. Which is why I think, although we should do all possible for the poor people and so on, if you want to understand what Christian love is, you should first understand what it is not. It's not charity. Charity I really hate. As a Christian, although atheist Christian, my, the, one of the figures of devil today for me is Starbucks coffee. Why? Did you notice the ideology when you enter it? It's their propaganda. When they, all the time, it's the same message. When you buy a cup of our coffee, you don't buy only a cup of coffee. You buy the whole world experience. You know, 2% two, two go to some Guatemala children to educate them for water and so on and so on, all that stuff. This kind of a, a charity manipulation, how does it function? This is false love. Why? Because when you see this disgusting poster, this is anti-Christianity at its purest. You know the poster of some disfigured, starving black child, and with the words, with a price for a, cup of, a couple of cups of cappuccinos, you can save this kid's life. But if you read between the lines, what's the message? The message is, there are people starving, we exploit them, and so on, but for a price of a couple of cappuccinos, we can make you feel good. So that... You don't have really to worry, not only this, but you can even feel good that you are doing something. Don't underestimate this ideological functioning today. As a true Christian, you should even doubt, I think, all this organic food bullshit. Listen, when you see that uh, so-called organic apples, which are half rotten but, but cost three times more, <laughs> do you really buy them because you believe that they are less poisonous? I think you are here a uh, sane skeptic. You think? Maybe. But why then do you buy them? It makes you feel good. You see, even when I'm buying apples, I'm part of a larger movement. I'm hoping Mother Earth to get better. I'm, you know, it's, we are literally more and more buying, buying ideology. Now, believe me or not, really to conclude, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 so uh, what I am saying is that uh, the, the legacy of Christianity for me, the death of God legacy, is neither this kind of a Nietzschean positive or negative narrative in the sense of once there was an authentic God whom we lost. Now you can read this as a liberating message in the sense of, oh, finally we got rid of God, death of God, good riddance, and so on. Or the more pessimistic Heideggerian or others reading, God abandoned us, now we should wait, pray, prepare for God to come back. No, it is, God is definitely dead, and, but this is a reversal, but never forget this, a reversal in the guise of Holy Spirit. In Holy Spirit, Christ, Christ says what the secret, you don't remember when he says to his pupils, uh, when there will be the love between the two of you, I will be there. So don't fall into this fetishist trap of 
searching around, where is this jerk? No, you don't need, in your search, in the collective, he is already here. He is alive if you struggle with it. In one of my books, The Monstrosity of Christ, I quote, I hope you know it, otherwise you don't deserve to be Americans. That wonderful old labor song, Joe Hill. You know when. Joe Hill appears to an ordinary worker, and the worker says, but you died. And Joe Hill said, no, whenever workers strike in Maine, I am there, and so on and so on. That's the Holy Ghost. So, to conclude, please believe me, just this. Uh, what God do we get here? It's rather like the God from an old Bolshevik joke from the 1920s. This is crucial because at that point such joke was still possible when they still believed that communist propagandists can be effective, good. Uh, about a communist propagandist who suddenly collapsed and died and of course after his death found himself in hell. But there being a good propagandist, he quickly convinced the guards to let him go out and to heaven. When, after a week or so, the devil notices the absence on his usual regular control, uh, notices the absence of this guy, he quickly went up, took the elevator up, paid a visit to God, demanding that he returns to hell what belongs to the devil. Uh, however, immediately after the devil addressed God with, listen, my Lord, God interrupted him. First, I am not a Lord, but a comrade. Second, are you crazy talking to fictions? I don't exist. And third, be cut it short, otherwise I'll miss my partisan meeting. This is the God we need today. A God who wholly becomes man, a comrade among us, crucified together with two social outcasts. A God who not only doesn't exist, but also himself knows this, accepts his cannotic erasure, entirely passing over into the love which binds members of the Holy Ghost, which, as you know, Holy Ghost is an entity which has different names, like Revolutionary Party, Emancipatory Collective, and so on and so on. In this sense, I'm unconditionally Christian, and I think that in a quite naive way, only this basic Christian, how should I call it, spiritual structure, this incredibly important idea of an emancip egalitarian emancipatory collective which breaks with all this traditional pagan bullshit of the wheel of justice where, you know, like where the highest value is to be or do what is your duty at your proper place. Like, you know, you are too much excess. The traditional justice as we know is the justice of proper measure, as Aristotle put it. Catastrophe is when you want too much, too much power, too much pleasures, then fate punishes you, balance is reestablished. The message of Christ is exactly the opposite one, the non-holistic extreme one. No, we can cut, cut it short, we can totally destabilize the universe. Thanks very much for your patience. I will do a communist gesture of God. Did you notice, sorry, it's my old joke, but I cannot resist saying it. Did you notice in old Stalinist and fascist documentaries how the leader, fascist leader is applauded, but he never applauds himself. 
she just receives the so by Stalin and other great luminaries. Did you notice how when in the Central Committee they are applauded, they always join the applause? Like, you know, it's not me, I'm just one of you, and so on and so on. Only in this sense I'm a Stalinist and I proudly applaud with you. <laughs> are these on? They are. Great. I think we can stay seated now. Uh, Dr. Altizer, do you have a response to... No, 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 no. Uh, very good. Dr. Zizek, do you have a response to Altizer's paper in particular? Sorry? Do you have a response to his paper in particular? Then we'll No, I have just one friendly... Uh, don't be afraid, it will not be another ten minutes. Literally one sentence. Uh, I like your very dialectical play with God, Satan, and so on. I just hope you agree that it's crucial here to resist any gnostic dualistic temptation. Oh, yeah. It's not all this absolutely boring, disgusting, you know, God and devil and then making... It's not this. It's, you, it's not this. I can sleep calmly. I don't have to mobilize KGB to investigate you like... It's not Gnostic dualism. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to be sure. <laughs> His key term for distinguishing um, this kind of uh, coincidentio oppositorum from dualism is dialectic. So when he yeah. says dialectic, it's absolutely non-dualistic. Yeah. Absolutely. Which so. is why we should also strictly oppose Hegel to this Jungian obscurantist idea that you know you should avoid one extreme and the other extreme and find a proper balance. Although this is usually taken as dialectic, it's not. Right.